welcome to the latest episode of Footnotes, the podcast of the Sydney University Law Society, a legal podcast run by students for students, breaking down the law and all its complexities one chat at a time. I'm Brandon. And I'm David. And on this episode, we're once again chatting COVID-19 and the law. We will speak to two academics from Sydney Law School, Associate Professor Belinda Smith and Professor Barbara McDonald, who very kindly agreed to help us to understand all the complexities behind the latest legal questions on COVID-19. Now, David, I never thought that after joining you for our first COVID podcast episode that we'd be back for a second. I mean, who would have thought we would have come back with so many new legal questions that didn't even cross our mind in our first chat? Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's a bit of a deja vu, isn't it, mate? Oh, absolutely. But uh, also, I think, slightly different because I find it interesting that this really is about the same thing, the, the pandemic's interactions um, with the law. But the first time around, you know, we, we were sort of talking people eating kebabs on park benches and getting fined and, uh, you know, police powers and whatnot. But now we're, we're discussing health law and vaccine mandates and uh, a lot of, the, I think, the same issues and substance, but how they present a little bit different. Now, this episode will be divided into three sections. First, we will look at the legality of business-made mandatory vaccination directives through the lens of workplace health and safety laws. Then, we will explore the effects of anti-discrimination laws on preventing entry to both unvaccinated and vaccinated people. And finally, we're going to dive into how uh, your favourite subject, tort law, might be used in actions prompted by the lockdowns and the increase in people who have been infected with COVID in our community. So, enough talk, let's get into more talk, let's get started. Our first section in this episode is on the implications of businesses mandating vaccinations for their staff and how this interacts with work, health and safety laws. To help answer our questions, we were joined by the uh, very distinguished Associate Professor Belinda Smith. She is an academic in the uh, Sydney Law School who formerly worked at the Australian Industrial Relations Commission and uh, in private practice before entering academia. She is an expert in discrimination law and you might be very familiar with her name and uh, listeners beware only if this doesn't bring up too much trauma for you because she is a co-author of the Foundies textbook. Brandon, you got to interview her. What do you think were some of the key takeaways from that little chat you had? I think one of the overarching messages she gave in her answers was that businesses needed to take into account their duties to keep workers safe. And in the current conditions, vaccination is the most effective way to do this. But she also made this important point that can tend to be lost in a purely legal analysis. I think there could be quite a lot of people who are not necessarily anti-vaccination, but anti-mandate. So they're sort of asserting their autonomy, while at the same time, maybe quite rashly and socially wanting to do the right thing but objecting to the mandatory aspect and the language of it. Even toning the language down so it's not mandating, but imposing a condition of entry or a condition of employment, which you know it might amount to the same thing, but I, I do think it's less inflammatory. I also think we have to be mindful that there are some people who might still struggle to get the information they need to allay their concerns. Like we all presumably had some concerns about the vaccination. And once we had those questions answered, we were able to go and get vaccinated. But there may be some people still, I'm sure, in marginalised communities 
who don't have the same literacy skills or the materials not being provided in their language. And same with some people with disability who have communication challenges and they're not being provided with the information in the appropriate way. So I think we should be mindful that not everyone who's unvaccinated is anti-vaccination and not everyone who's anti-mandate is anti-vaccination. Yeah, I mean, look, that's interesting. Obviously, you got, uh, for lack of a better term, some real nuttos and nut jobs out there. But I think she makes a quite salient point that you got to have a bit of nuance in this and be careful not to dismiss people who may, from a very technical and legal perspective, have some legitimate concerns or even not even concerns, thoughts about this issue, which you shouldn't automatically pencil down as the thoughts of a, a crazy person. So I thought it's a very interesting point to make. Yeah, and I agree with that. I think a good point she made was that some people are happy to get vaccinated, but against that idea of mandates. And I think one of the ideas that flowed through was the idea of mandates, particularly to those who aren't legally trained or aren't knowledgeable in the law, is that it is sort of an overreach into what people consider their freedoms. And in that respect, I think there's a good point to say that we shouldn't put those two, anti-mandate and anti-vaccination, into the same category. Yeah, sure. And I think, you know, even if you still disagree with their points, I think there's, there's a difference between, you know, someone who goes, oh, look, you know, vaccines give you autism, you know, whatever, whatever, it's all conspiracy, where I think it can be fairly justified in telling them to... Um, to, I can't use that word on this podcast, uh, but to, to go away um, and someone who has some issues with maybe perceived legal, you know, executive power overage and maybe even if you don't agree with that position, sitting them down and, and explaining to them, you know, your rationale and having a polite conversation instead of dismissing them as a, you know, far-right anti-vax loony. I mean, you, you mentioned the, the duty just before we heard from the professor with that all being said, what is the actual duty that employers have to their employees? I asked that question to Associate Professor Smith. Take a listen. Work health and safety laws impose a duty on a business to ensure, so far as is reasonably practical, the health and safety of workers and actually other workplace participants like customers and clients. So the obligation is on the business and this is a criminal duty. And what that means is that every business has to identify risks assess those risks, develop control measures in response, um, and then monitor. And if they don't, they could be in breach of the work health and safety laws and subject to criminal um, prosecution. Now, I think earlier, Associate Professor Smith also mentioned uh, reasonable control measures. What are they? What did, what did she say about them? Well, let's take a listen. The business has an obligation to use whatever is known about risk management mechanisms, control measures, they're called, to eliminate or reduce those risks. And so at the moment, the best way to reduce the risks of workers catching COVID or suffering terribly from COVID is by vaccination. And so in fact, a business that doesn't require vaccination would likely to be in breach of those obligations because it is a a known and the best available way to reduce that risk at the moment. At the moment, that would be the strongest obligation on businesses in respect of protecting their workers and customers and clients. Sure, that's really interesting. Um, 
And I mean, look, there's been, I think, increasing talk about other technologies and, and measures that can stop the spread of COVID as, you know, control measures. You've got these rapid antigen tests available in supermarkets. You know, you can get your results in 30 minutes flat. You don't have to isolate for an entire day. It doesn't really disrupt your routine that much. Unless you test positive, of course. Um, and businesses uh, can continue to enforce mask wearing in offices. To, to listeners, if you are working, I'm sure you've seen those plastic shields and dividers to prevent people from being too close to each other. And of course, you've got general distancing measures. How do these, I guess, play into uh, alternative control measures? Well, I asked Associate Professor Smith on this point, and she provided an answer that was... In the circumstances, it is a weighing up of what are the more effective control measures and what is enforceable at the time by a business. In employment contracts, the employer has the right to issue lawful and reasonable directions, right? So built into that reasonableness is scope for some of those factors that you mentioned. If we take just two examples, so one is a an ambulance worker versus somebody who works out on a nursery, like a farm, The fact that the ambulance worker would be coming into contact with people who are injured or sick and might have to work very closely with them is quite different to somebody who's working on their own, you know, planting seeds out in a nursery, right? So different risk factors then. So then you mentioned, you know, what about alternative protective measures? That is certainly the case that if there are alternative ways of protecting people, you can choose between, you know, it says what is reasonably practicable can be open to interpretation and there might be alternative ways of offering protection. The problem at the moment is that the vaccine is the best way to reduce harm to the individual, transmission, and then hospitalization for either, right? So the individual, anyone that transmitted it to, or death, of course. So there are additional measures like masks and PPE and so on, but they're not considered the best. They're considered an adjunct. The rapid antigen testing would change the matrix weighing up the different factors to see what's reasonably practicable and so on what would be what an employer could require but i think of the testing as guaranteeing that the person who's been tested and coming into the workplace that they themselves do not have covid and so that they then won't spread it to other workers or clients but it doesn't necessarily protect that worker themselves from getting it from someone else and so The question is whether I, as as an employer, can allow you who don't want to get vaccinated but are prepared to take a test to come onto the site and, okay, that means you're not going to pose a danger to others, but you're still at risk yourself and I am ultimately responsible for that. And adding on to that point about businesses having to be responsible for their workers, she posed a hypothetical about an employee's choice not to use a harness I think is quite instructive in how we should think about these work health and safety directives. It's kind of akin to saying to a worker, look, there's a really high building there, there's scaffolding, we have a harness, but if you choose not to wear it, that's okay, because you're only posing a risk to yourself. And there is, you know, a difference between the scaffolding and the vaccination, I, I, I get that, right? We wouldn't allow that. And similarly, I as an employer, I can't allow a worker to simply opt out of my control measures because it would only hurt the person because I'm responsible for their health as well. So there is a little bit of tension there about autonomy that the individual could choose and so on. But I still wonder whether a 
WorkSafe um, inspector would still expect a business to take the most effective mechanism, particularly in high risk scenarios. I mean, yeah, look, I mean, Brandon, this is all really, really interesting. And I think her point about the employer's choice not to use a harness and, you know, what, the degree to which something's a necessity for health risks and whatnot is really interesting. And I think that probably leads on to uh, the other thing I sort of had at the back of my mind, which is we know as a matter of science that in order to make up for the waning efficacy of certain vaccines, we need booster shots in the future. We know that there is a lot of discussion around legal mandating of the first two doses of a vaccine to get you that, you know, full vaccine program. But do you think booster shots would be legally mandated. Yeah, well, I really struggled with this because I thought it's really a question of sort of crystal ball gazing into the future, thinking, what would happen then? And we'd have to consider things like how much are our COVID cases going to increase and what's the hospitalisation rate like? And then future variants that might be, you know, post-Delta, post-Omicron. And as you mentioned also about Australia's vaccination programs with the shortened dosage windows, particularly in New South Wales, during our lockdown and how that might adversely affect the vaccine efficacy. And then things like mandating only when employees have had a chance to reach that booster interval and then also book that appointment. And with those things in mind and many more that would come into question, I asked Associate Professor Smith about what she sees about the booster mandates at the moment and whether they would be legal directions by an employer at a future time. A business is required to take into account the current knowledge of the risks and of ways to minimise those risks. So if either of those things changes, then the approach would change. Months ago, it probably would not have been reasonable for an employer to direct employees to be vaccinated before they return to work. Why? Because we didn't have vaccines readily available to everyone. But now that they are readily available, and there's still small groups who can't get the information they need or can't be satisfied, and so I'm not ruling that out. But given that now a range of vaccinations are readily available, that analysis, the weighing up of the factors, changes. So if the risk of COVID was reduced, if we knew that, say, 90% of the population is vaccinated, we know that that means 90% of the population is at a lower risk of getting severe consequences of COVID. And they're less likely to be hospitalized and less likely to die. So that changes the risk factor. If we got significant improvements in um, treatment of it so that it was no longer a serious risk to anyone, that too would change the risk factor of somebody getting it. You know, we don't impose super duper high control measures to avoid people getting a cold. Why? Because it doesn't pose a huge risk. But alternatively, if we got more alternatives to control the risks, so the rapid antigen testing changes our information about the risks, different sorts of equipment maybe, even the knowledge that once we found out that it was spread respiratorily rather than by touch, that changed what was required of businesses. So similarly, if we come up against the next round saying, oh, now we require people to get boosters, a similar sort of question would be asked. Okay, well, why do we need it? What risk does it pose to not have a booster? What risk management options do we have available to us? Is a third, a booster, the best or the most reasonably practicable option? given that it infringes upon autonomy and choice. So yes, a similar sort of analysis would occur 
in respect of a booster. What I gathered from that is at the moment, because we are early into the booster shot program and because information about the response a booster provides against Omicron is not yet settled, that boosters right now are not going to be seen as lawful and reasonable directions. But in the future, say autumn or winter 2022, it will be another case where businesses will have to revisit this and look again at what the circumstances and what are the realities of the COVID world at the time. David? Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, I absolutely agree. And taking a broader view of the discussion, you know, we've just had and what we've heard from Associate Professor Smith around work, health and safety laws in general, I'm glad it's, you know, uh, someone as distinguished as her saying this and not not just the far-right loonies, because I think it is an important point to make that as much as I might personally agree with the fact that you need to get vaccinated, that everyone should get vaccinated, it isn't crazy and it isn't an extraordinarily parochial worldview to say, you know, hey, look, even if this thing in principle is a good thing, maybe when we sort of perform our sort of risk benefit analysis, sometimes the heavy hand of government mandate uh, isn't the best way to deal with it. Now, I'm not, that's not a conclusion as to whether or not you should mandate booster shots. I think it's more so a conclusion about um, we as people who are favorable towards the idea of you should get vaccinated, everyone should get vaccinated, should perhaps be less dismissive of conversations around what methods you should take to get to those goals. In saying that though, obviously there are areas of the vaccine mandate which have proved the most controversial and that's unvaccinated people not being allowed to enter a premise, which by the way I fully agree with. But obviously you hear all sorts of things around, is this fair, is this legal, can you discriminate against unvaccinated people in that way? I think it's silly. I think if you don't get the shot, then it's kind of your fault. You can't go shop, not our concern. But I understand that I'm not the law and the law may have a different uh, view on this. So I will defer to an expert on this. And uh, I think Associate Professor Smith did have something to say on this. There's really quite little scope for discrimination laws to apply here because although anti-discrimination laws do apply to businesses, both in respect of their workers and their business, they only protect particular attributes. So you can't directly or indirectly discriminate against somebody in respect of an attribute. So sex or race or disability or religion or so on. And choosing not to get vaccinated is not a protected attribute. So there's some scope for indirect discrimination where say a business imposes a, an apparently neutral requirement or condition, which this would be, that could disparately impact or differently impact upon particular groups, but those groups are not necessarily protected other than possibly two. So one is a very, very, very small minority of people who have a medical reason for not being vaccinated. They might have a claim. Or another very small minority of people who have a religious belief that is not aligned with vaccination. So two things to say there. The business can still impose the requirement. They might have an action brought against them, but you know they're, they're likely to be able to repel it the requirement to impose a vaccination is likely to be considered reasonable and thus lawful. Why? For those reasons we discussed before about work health and safety obligations and employment contract rights. And so 
is likely to be not unlawful discrimination. Right, and um, that's interesting. And I think the takeaway there is uh, anti-vaxxers out there, not getting your vaccinations are not the same thing as suffering decades or not centuries of historical oppression and marginalization. So please get your shot. Although, of course, uh, more, more seriously, there are some um, more legitimate exemptions that may come into play. And on that point, I was reading an article in The Conversation a few weeks ago about pseudo-legal arguments that have been used by people who are anti-vaccination to trick staff into allowing them to enter premises even though they are unvaccinated. We've linked the article in the episode description. And I feel sorry for those consumer-facing people like those in the restaurant, the gyms, the cafes and the supermarkets who have had to deal with erroneous legal arguments made by people who have not been vaccinated by choice. And I think because the law is complex, sometimes the threat of litigation using these pseudo-legal arguments is enough to scare people into giving in. But to the workers who are responsible for checking people's vaccination status, rest assured that so long as you are following the public health orders, the law is on your side and any lawsuit will fall through. The, the other issue that I guess relates to that and is really the, the inverse of this is um, I've read on the news and uh, some articles about business owners who, you know, given that 90 to 80% of the population, depending on where you're on in Australia, uh, have been vaccinated. Um, so I don't really know why they're making this decision from a business point of view. But business owners who are denying people who are vaccinated from entering their premises. Now, is that legal? Yeah, that was really interesting. I saw an article about um, a South Australian business doing that. And hearing from Associate Professor Smith on her first answers about um, there's only certain grounds where discrimination can happen, I was thinking, hmm, it could be legal. But here, have a listen to what she said about whether preventing vaccinated people from entering businesses is legal. The irony actually is that if a business does the converse, so if a business is putting up signs saying, if you have been vaccinated, you cannot enter, that is more likely to be unlawful discrimination. And that's because our laws prevent businesses from making assumptions or stereotypes about attributes and one of those is disability and disability extends to an assumption that you have in your body and organism that causes a disease or illness so that idea that this misunderstanding that a vaccination is a live vaccination and that you may be shedding those assumptions and stereotypes if that is the basis for a business for refusing somebody who has been vaccinated refusing them entry then that could be discrimination and be litigated. If somebody has told me that they have been vaccinated and then I refuse to allow them entry, that could be discrimination. On the other hand, if you, I don't know, saying, no, it's not that I think you've got germs and you're spreading it, but I object to your political position of having succumbed to this idea of mandate and giving in to the government, for instance, or social pressure, then maybe that maybe that wouldn't be you know the basis of discrimination but certainly if it if it's based on misinformation about assumptions about the disease itself the virus itself then that's where a business could come unstuck and be liable for unlawful discrimination well that's good to hear you know what that the uh, law would likely not permit that kind of discrimination although you know my take is still you don't need the law let the free market sort it out in this case if you're going to deny entry to 90 percent of your customers good luck and uh you know good luck keeping your business open but it is good to hear that uh this is something 
the law would likely prevent. Yeah, I think it's definitely a case of the market will decide because when you think about it, most Australians maintain reasonable views on the issue and they're not with sort of irrational beliefs. And they think that when they are vaccinated, they are doing good. And preventing entry for the most part is not a big concern because of the, the, the fact that we don't have a lot of people that are unvaccinated in the community. But it's interesting about that political view or imputed knowledge of someone having a disease and that evidentiary basis that Associate Professor Smith talked about. Because I think in the end, if it came to a court of law, it's a, really a question of would the person be honest in telling the court their thoughts? Because if they're not honest, then they've committed a crime. But if they are honest, it then might make them civilly liable because their beliefs are discriminatory in nature as recognised by a law. So in, anyway, in the end, it's sort of a lose-lose situation. And one other thing, I was also sort of taken aback about the political views point that Associate Professor Smith mentioned in her interview and how it has a better chance to be found to not be discrimination. So I pressed her one more time about the peculiar or rational views and how they would interact with anti-discrimination law. Generally, a business is permitted to restrict entry into its business so long as it doesn't breach discrimination laws or safety laws or other laws. Not all distinctions amount to discrimination. We don't protect everyone against irrational, arbitrary, odd, peculiar views. And as I, as I mentioned, discrimination laws generally only protect against decisions that reinforce marginalization that we've had in the past, traditional exclusions based on race, sex, disability, sexuality, and so on. So it's not a general, you can't be unfair to clients or you must act rationally, or you can only base your exclusions on non-arbitrary principles. It's not that wide. It's really just discrimination laws are designed to challenge and change traditional practices of marginalization and exclusion. But given that such a small minority of the population who has not been vaccinated, we're not talking about a large group of people here. Yeah, well, look, I mean, I, I think that's super interesting. And again, to sort of reflect on everything um, the professor has said and what I sort of think is, I think a lot of the people who are a little bit, you know, about this in the head, uh, I sort of go, look, you know, discrimination laws are here. They protected other people in the past. I'm the minority in the situation, so why wouldn't discrimination laws protect me in this case? Whereas I think it is also quite good to see that the law and especially the, the anti-discrimination area of the law seems to be quite common sense on this issue, if you know what I mean, in that it's not very, you know, letter of the law, but it's very much what we as a society think about things that should be protected and from a very common sense angle where things are obviously done in a discriminatory or oppressive way, then the law kicks into effect where it obviously is just, uh, you know, where someone doesn't want to accommodate for someone's weird anti-vax preferences, then anti-discrimination laws would not come into effect at all. Yeah, and I think it's finally a case of, as you mentioned, the market will decide more so than the law in this case. Our final section in this podcast episode is on tort law and uh, how the recent New South Wales lockdowns and increase in the number of people uh, exposed to COVID may bring about tortious actions. To help answer our questions, we were joined in this section by Professor Barbara MacDonald. Professor MacDonald is an academic at Sydney Law School 
who served as a Commissioner of the Australian Law Reform Commission on an inquiry into serious invasions of privacy in the digital era. She is an expert on torts, equity and privacy law, and we previously had her on last year's COVID episode. She is also a co-author of the key torts textbook that we use at the university. I've got her book right above me on my bookshelf right now. (laughs) Yep, I've got it as well. David, we both had the pleasure of interviewing her. What were some of the key things or the big things that stood out for you? Yeah, look, she gave us a lot of good stuff, I think, and it was a very, very comprehensive answer from someone who's obviously a big expert on this area of the law. But if you really wanted, like, a one-line takeaway from this is that um, the law doesn't really extend as far as duties of care in protecting people from COVID. So that's to say, not that it doesn't and it won't, but um, in an area of law which is about torts and civil causes of action, it seems to me that what she's saying, it's very, very unlikely for that area of law to really cover any incidents that happen as a result of COVID. Hmm, that was something that I thought the law was lacking on. But we started our chat by asking Professor McDonald about whether a duty of care could be established if an employee caught COVID at work. Here's her analysis. I have absolutely no doubt that an employer has owes a duty of care to an employee to provide a safe place of work, a safe system of work, safe equipment, safe methods of work, and so on. The duty of the employer at common law is simply the duty to take reasonable care. And of course, there are all sorts of occupational health and safety regulations which need to be followed, statutory regulations. So there is no doubt that an employer owes an employee a duty of care to ensure that safe workplace. And the question I think then moves whether or not there would be a breach of that duty if the employer failed to take reasonable steps to protect the employee from the risks of being infected by COVID-19 at all, and certainly becoming ill, possibly death, seriously ill, and of course, all the consequences of suffering COVID such as long COVID. So yeah, I think that's really interesting what she mentioned about how this duty would actually get up. And obviously, harking back to the thing about work health and safety laws that we said before, it is that provision of a safe workplace that is important. And obviously, the duty between employer and employee is very, very established in tort law, particularly in negligence. Now, I found this thing interesting, David, about what she said about her view on vaccine mandates. I've been pretty curious watching employees arguing that they don't have to get a vaccine in order to continue to work and and arguing that it's unreasonable of their employers to require them to have a vaccine to continue to work because the employer owes a duty to everyone not to have a potentially fatal contagious disease circulating in the workplace, both to other employees and to customers, patients, if you're a university to students, if you're a school to pupils, you know, duties of care to avoid physical injury and illness are, you know, very well established. Interesting issues as to whether or not they're breached. To me, again, I feel it's a no brainer that it would be a breach to allow an unvaccinated person into the workplace. And I've been quite curious that a number of employers at different times in this context, not just hospitals, but aged care service providers, have at different times said, oh, well, the government's not mandating it yet, and it's up to the individual employee. 
Personally, I can't see why it's up to the individual employee as to whether they want to get a vaccine or not. Seems to me, if you want to work in this area where you're putting other people at risk, this could be in a supermarket, for example, then I think it's perfectly reasonable for the employer to say, no, sorry, we just can't let you in if you haven't been vaccinated. The risk is too great. Well, that's really interesting. And I think essentially her view seems to align a lot with Associate Professor um, Belinda Smith, just from, I think, a more you know uh, civil law, causes of action, tort law sort of perspective. We also asked her a couple of things about duties of care. So we got a little bit you know, technical and, and details here, but uh, in relation to specifically between all of the different stakeholder parties and groups that are involved in COVID, whether it be healthcare, or whether it just be general workplaces, do people have responsibilities in law to each other to not catch COVID or to prevent them from catching COVID? And the next duty of care question we asked was whether a nurse is offered a duty of care by the state government. Professor McDonald's assessment. As soon as you start trying to pin a duty of care in negligence on a government or public authority, you will run into difficulties. Public authorities can be liable like everyone else when they are employers or when they are occupiers or when they are running a hospital. They must do it with reasonable care. They have a duty to various people to take reasonable care. The duty is clear. But once the public authority's role is not one of those categories, employer, occupier, operator, but is merely the category of government, the regulator, or the person with the power to regulate, it becomes much more difficult to establish that there's a duty to do something in a particular way, or even that there's a duty at all. I mean, at the moment, there's very interesting litigation going on in the Federal Court of Australia about whether the federal government minister owed a duty of care to all the children of Australia when approving a coal mine to avoid them suffering physical injury from climate change. The same thing applies in relation to people in general or the whole medical profession when you are a state government in charge of a hospital system or a federal government in charge of financing a hospital system. You've got power, that's undoubted, but do you have a duty to those individuals or rather would the court say that this is non-justiciable? It's a matter of policy, which is determined by things like budgets and political matters and it's not up to the court to intervene here. Look, I think the state government and the nurse That's tricky because nurses could be employed as locums by an agency. They could be employed by a private hospital, by a public hospital, by a charitable not-for-profit hospital. However, you know, the state government and the federal government are funding, quite often providing funding. You know, there's an argument that they have a role and a duty, but I think it would be much more difficult. And now we asked her about, say, a general member of the public whether they were offered a duty of care by the state government if they caught COVID. If it's difficult to show a duty of care between the state government and any member of the medical profession, it would be even more difficult to establish a duty of care between the state or the federal government and a general member of the public. What you have to remember, again, with public authorities is it's not enough to say that it's reasonably foreseeable that the person might suffer loss. I mean, perhaps a lot of people might be saved if the federal government had ordered more Pfizer shots earlier, Uh, but they didn't for various reasons of their own. And that was their political decision not to do that. I mean, they put up reasons. Oh, we wanted to see how Pfizer worked overseas or something like that, or it wasn't a threat here. It's easy to be wise with hindsight. 
It's just very difficult to prove that the government has a duty of care to a particular member of the public as a class. Did they create the danger? Did they increase the danger? Now, some people might argue they did by their omission, but again, it's always hard to show a duty to take affirmative action. If they do something badly, like provide the wrong vaccine, for example, then yes, clearly you could say that there's a duty to do it properly and that was breached. But suing the government for failing to do something is a very difficult matter, even at common law. When you add the restrictions that are placed by the Civil Liability Act in each state, it becomes even more difficult to sue a government or public authority. Okay, well, I mean, look, Brandon, you can probably hear from her tone that it seems pretty damn unlikely. But what we did put to her is, and listeners, you've probably seen this in the news, it's the Sharma case. It's a group of kids who sued the federal government um, over their lack of climate action. And they won a case in the federal court that basically said that the government has a duty of care to mitigate the consequences of climate change. But, but, and this is a big part, it's on appeal all the way up to the top potentially, and we asked her about what the potential ramifications, either way the appeal goes, the ramifications that outcome could have on this area of law. In the unlikely event that the full federal court finds that the Minister for the Environment had a duty of care when deciding upon legislation, undoubtedly it'll go to the High Court. And there's nothing in the High Court jurisprudence to date that would support, in terms of negligence law, a duty of care owed by a government in relation to core policy decisions when legislating. There's nothing really that would give comfort, I think, to a claim like that. I'm somewhat surprised that um, you know, there's arguments about a reasonable cause of action in these cases. But nevertheless, a judge did decide that, you know, there was a duty of care. Albert addicted because he wouldn't have given an injunction anyway. I think um, for the High Court to decide that the government owed a duty when legislating to an indeterminate class of people, such as all the children of Australia or all the people of Australia, it would have to turn established principles on their head in tort law. And that's before you even get to the separation of powers, constitutional law arguments that could be made in such a case. Yeah, I think that was really interesting what you said there, David, about the Sharma case. I wasn't really across the whole case. And I think, yeah, it's a it's a case of at the moment, there's no sort of floodgate that has opened that said um, a new duty or a novel duty of care can be established. But I think really it is interesting to look at that case and see if there would be a duty of care established between, as she said, sort of this general, more nebulous category of persons sure. being the people of Australia or the young people of Australia and a minister in making a decision. So I think... Sharma at the moment should not be something that people hold their um, sort of caps on in defining that there's definitely a relationship, but it will be an interesting case that I think will definitely become part of our taught studies in years to come. Now, um, what about what she said about a general person in the community owed a duty of care in relation to the lockdowns and its effects, say on small businesses or educational attainment? What were your key takeaways from what she said, David? I mean, look, I think it's really the same kind of issues in that it's too remote. It's uh, a very broad outcome. And as much as I personally can sort of see the general policy logic behind holding the government to account, I think her point was really from a legal perspective and um, here it's right from her, from a legal perspective, it seems unlikely. Well, again, not without some pre-existing relationship between the defendant, whoever that happens to be, 
and the plaintiff. So, you know, you might be talking about a teacher who's owed a duty of care by a school or by the Department of Education as employer, or you might be talking about a school pupil clearly is owed a duty of care by a school, whether it's the Department of Education or by a private school, to take reasonable care to protect them. So a lot of the issue would go to breach um, and whether or not that had been breached. I mean, once you've proved a duty, which is there, and you can establish breach, the question then will be, you know, causation and scope. I, I can't see that any of those losses would be beyond the scope, although educational attainment would be very difficult to, I suppose, establish. The biggest issue I think there would be proving a breach, bearing in mind that when you're looking at breach, particularly if it's a school which has multiple responsibilities or a hospital with multiple responsibilities, limited budgets, and a rapidly moving public health orders where it's trying to balance what it's doing and there's a high degree of lack of knowledge about what's the right thing to do. You've then got the issue of industry practice, which is not in itself a conclusive defense to negligence because the court can say, well, you're all negligent, but nevertheless, it goes some way to establishing what a reasonable person would do in the circumstances. So. I don't think there's a problem with duty if there's a pre-existing relationship between the two parties. There would be a big problem of duty if it's, say, just a, a small business who is put out of work because suddenly there's a, a lockdown order for a particular local government area, for example, without justification. I'm sure some of the local government areas were saying, look, we don't have any COVID cases in our suburb. There's no evidence that we've had COVID. I think Burwood was one of them. So why should all the businesses in Burwood shut down? But it's very difficult to challenge that order, which is done in the midst of a pandemic with multiple responsibilities. Yeah, I think what she said is quite reasonable, that there's not an established category between a citizen or a resident and their state government without any other pre-existing relationship. And while lockdowns have hurt everybody, of course, to differing degrees and to different economic and other losses, at this point, it looks like it was more a case of policy where the lockdown had to happen to reduce the cases at the time and reduce that spread because we didn't have the vaccination levels that we do now. And unfortunately, I think on this ground, it is unlikely to succeed. And David, we did some research about self-isolation when the people who were in isolation weren't brought out when they were supposed to. Do you remember specifically why we thought to ask Professor McDonnell about this? Yeah, sure. It was really um, people who get screwed over by the self-isolation uh, requirements. And uh, if you have to stay in, you know, whether it's hotel, your own home, for a bit longer than you have to, what happens? Who has to take responsibility, if anyone at all? Check out what she said on this. I think you could argue that there is a duty of care between the authority which makes the self-isolation order and the subject, the victim of that self-isolation order. You might have an issue of breach. You know, why did they breach it? I have read about people who were just sort of forgotten. You know, that, I mean, the reality is that the governments quite often are scrambling with a workforce and some people do fall through the cracks. I mean, clearly it's human error that they do so, or it might be a systems error. Whether it amounts to a breach of duty when you've got multiple responsibilities may be difficult. The big problem you'd have in a negligence case is what is the damage? I mean, as you say, if a person was locked up for longer than necessary so couldn't work when they could have worked if they weren't locked up, then they would have economic loss. So that clearly would be damage for the purposes of negligence law. So 
I can see a possibility there, subject to finding breach. Yeah, and I think what she said there was really a great explanation of the law, that there could be a duty, but the question of it is breach. And we've seen countless examples of when the government has unfortunately been overrun with lots of different things that they're running through. I remember when they stopped contact tracing for casual contacts, Mm. and that was a really big change in policy because we thought the government should be responsible for all these things. But in the end, I think obviously with the amount of people they had, they couldn't overburden people to do that. The other thing that we came up was false imprisonment, where we thought if people are in their own homes and are compelled not to leave because of a state government requirement to do it, would that become false imprisonment? And here's what she said. False imprisonment on all precedent has to be intentional in the sense that the defendant must have intended that they be locked up. And putting someone under a self-isolation order is effective. You don't have to lock them up with a key. It's enough if you put them under the apprehension that they you know, would be arrested if they tried to leave their house. So that's fine. But on the other hand, if the imprisonment continues because they forget that they're there, that raises the issue of whether that imprisonment is a negligent false imprisonment for the purposes of that action. And as far as I know, there is no precedent where someone has sued in trespass for false imprisonment, which is actionable per se, you don't have to prove damage, where the imprisonment has been negligent. Some people would argue, look, you've, you have suffered a loss. You've suffered a loss of your liberty. And from a case called Lewis in the Australian Capital Territory in the High Court in 2020, the High Court did talk about loss of liberty as a loss for the purposes of a trespass case. Now, in that case, they only gave Mr. Lewis nominal damages because Mr. Lewis should have been locked up anyway. He was unlawful at large because he'd been violent to somebody and he was liable to be arrested at any moment if he breached his orders and and he had breached them. So the High Court held that actually his liberty was worthless. Although he was locked up for 82 days under an invalid order, he would have been locked up anyway. Uh, and um, he was liable to be locked up anyway, so his liberty wasn't worth very much. But for most normal people, your liberty is worth a lot. And what I think was interesting from the High Court case is where Chief Justice Kiefel talked about loss of liberty being a loss for the purposes of trespass law, sufficient to support an action of trespass. It may well, you know, I don't know, it may well be that the court might recognise in Australia a negligent false imprisonment leading to damages, more than nominal damages. I have to say it's the sort of question you would set for a moot. Well, that's really, really interesting. And I think, again, she's making a lot of the same points that the intentional element is key in false imprisonment, which is not to say, you know, to any listeners out there who may have done a much longer stint in self-ISO than you had to, we're sorry, uh, but you're unlikely to get anything if you sue him in court. And lastly, we asked Professor MacDonald about the issue of death in aged care and whether or not a legal responsibility would apply there. I think the most successful potential for actions really are private institutions such as aged care homes, other institutional care providers who have not followed proper procedures to protect their residents from COVID. And it seems to me we've actually seen quite a few examples of that. Again, the trouble there is that You know, if a very old person dies of COVID at age of 95, there's unlikely to be much economic loss to the family. And the family are unlikely to suffer a recognised psychiatric illness. 
And as you might remember from your taught studies, there is no claim simply for grief or bereavement mm -hmm. under the Compensation to Relatives Act. Generally speaking, we don't give people compensation for mere distress mm. uh, unless it's unless it fits within assault or battery or defamation. We don't generally, our law doesn't provide people with a remedy for mere distress. And unfortunately, distress is what follows from a lot of these things. It is a big gap in our law, I think, that we don't have bereavement damages. And yeah, I think what she mentioned here about deaths in aged care being quite unfortunate for people but unfortunately not able to quantify the losses easily with somebody who is quite old who doesn't have a lot of earning capacity and without bereavement damages in our law at the moment there is not much however if they were sort of seeking declaratory relief or nominal damages to prove that they were at fault I think those cases can be run but the reality is with these cases it's a question of costs to the people if they're trying to make a big legal statement then they might run it but otherwise not and I think on the whole point, what Professor McDonald said is there is actually some scope for the government, for employers to be sued on these torts because if they do breach their duties of care, they might be on the hook for something, David. Yeah. And I think, look, if she is right about legal development, and obviously she is very authoritative on this, but of course, a lot of this hasn't gotten to the courts yet. But I think if what she says is all, all going to play out, I almost think it's good in the sense that you have some common law coverage of, I think, very basic common sense responsibilities employers and other people should have in relation to COVID, but also that it doesn't extend too far. And then areas where it is unfortunate that someone screwed up, someone has been affected or very sadly passed away from COVID, but it's not the common law's job to really extend into that category. Maybe it's up to the government to, for instance, pass laws. And in which case, you know, countries around the world have passed laws in relation to that. So my two cents is that seems to be a pretty good outcome if that's gonna be how it plays out. And I guess we eagerly wait and see. That pretty much wraps up this episode of Footnotes. A big thank you to our guests today, Associate Professor Belinda Smith and Professor Barbara McDonald. We greatly appreciate them giving us their time and honest assessments on the law about these very timely issues. Sure, and we couldn't do it without them or any of the very lovely guests over the last couple of years we've had on this podcast. So, big thank you to them. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to this podcast and uh, whatever app you're listening to right now. Thank you. I'd be a very, very happy boy if you do that. And finally, a shout out to our wonderful podcast producers for 2021. Vivian, Andrew, Jacinda, David, myself, and the publications director, Justin. Absolute dream team. So good working with all of them. See you next time, guys, and I uh, hope you enjoyed this episode.